0: occurred to me as we were uh, about to head into the first service Um, Isaiah chapter uh, 9 speaks about Messiah about this coming one who would save the world and in the context of that they see uh, those who those who walk in darkness have seen a great light is is the description and I began to think about seeing a great light have any of you guys ever been down to Mammoth Cave it's just if you haven't just a, a couple hours south of us is the largest caving system in the world. It's kind of interesting to go down and kind of check that area out. But one of the things they do on most of their caving tours is they take you down underground, and then they shut off all the lights. And the reason is they want to show you how dark things actually are. You thought you've seen dark before or not seen dark before. This is what it looks like. There's no ambient light anywhere. And and so it goes black, and it goes blacker than you have ever seen. I want our message to kind of focus in on that as we get rolling today. Jesus is described as a great light, and sometimes it's difficult to see how good the good news is until you see how bad the bad news is, amen? We're going to open up with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to use a number of metaphors today, and if you're like, where's this going? Just wait, we'll tie it all in. Let's pray. Master, our Deliverer, we praise you for the joy that you have instilled in us knowing what comes next, knowing where we're headed and where this, all of human history is going, Master, I, I pray that as we dig into today's message that, again, Father, you'll open up our minds, our hearts, speak to, speak to us not just emotionally, speak to our intellect and our understanding, and help us to be better people because of what we know about you. Lord, we love you, and uh, we're going to choose to love you with our hearts and minds right now by, by listening intently, by thinking in, intently and deeply. Thank you so much for your care for us. Thank you so much for coming to live among us. Thank you for being the God who comes to us. We praise you for all that you are. It is in your name we pray. Amen. You know how to find out whether you've got really good friends? Move. (laughs) If you move, if you decide to pack up all your belongings, you find out very quickly how close of friends you have and how many there actually are. All of us have done this, right? We've, We've all been in a situation where we've had to call somebody to get us from point A to point B. And especially as we're younger and more mobile and less prone to injury and less capable of paying someone to do it, we do this. We call a friend and we say, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? The and they go, nothing, man. What's going on? Ha! Gotcha. You're going to help me move. Great. And the trap is sprung and now they're obliged to come and help because they just told you they had nothing else going on. Nobody moves because they enjoy it, right? I mean, you do it out of a sense of obligation. And sometimes we'll try to sugarcoat things. Hey, I need you to help me, you know, move a few boxes. And a few boxes, come on, really? We all know that's not the case. And, and we'll, we'll portray it sometimes as like, you know, it's a party. We're, we're going to have a pizza party. I'm going to get pizza, and everybody's going to come over. We're going to eat and hang out, and we're also going to move. Nobody, nobody decides they want to move boxes as a party. Like, that's, that's never a party thing. You cannot have enough pizza in order to compensate for the, the process of moving. There's nobody that's that hungry. That being said, then, why do we move people? Why do we show up or why do we have people show up for us when it comes to an obligation like that? For one primary reason. They feel obliged to. They feel the need to help us. It's not for the pizza but it's for a friendship, it's, it's some commitment. Maybe, maybe it's family, maybe it's some devotion they've, they've got. Maybe they owe you a really big favor, but they show up in order to do something for you. It's, it's sort of this reciprocal, like, I know we're good enough friends that I kind of have to do this thing. So I want you to consider the greatest move you've ever had, the biggest move you've ever done. And then I want you to double it. And I want you to imagine you're sitting on that pile of boxes. Who's going to show up for you? Who's going to help you? We're going to talk about how dark this world is and how dark and bleak our circumstances are because that's a fun way to start Christmas. I want to talk about how much baggage we've got. The good news is only good news insofar as we know the bad news. So let's consider the bad news for a little bit. Have you ever showed up to move someone and uh, they, they said, hey, come on out, we got a, a few boxes, it's, it's going to be easy, I just need a strong back or two to come out and help me. And you show up to take care of the move, and, and when you get there, they do have a few boxes, I had this literal circumstance, they do have a few boxes, and those boxes are empty, and then they've just, they're basically turning you loose on their house. Well, I said I had a few boxes, and just, but we also have this piano, and we also have this antique furniture, and you realize that you've really been suckered, Right? You showed up, and like six hours later, you're sweating in a mess, and you're like, man, that was awful. We've all had that situation. We've all underestimated cargo. We've been the ones who called people in anyway. It's not that big a deal, only to find out it is really that big a deal. If I ask you this question, how would you answer it? What is your biggest problem right now? What's your biggest issue right now? In in the whole scope of the world spectrum, what is your issue? What's the one thing that is really important right now for you? And maybe broaden it a little bit. Not just what is your problem, but what's humanity's problem? What is the biggest problem of the world? Were we to ask that question, most people would say something like, well, I've got to pay off my mortgage. It's my biggest issue. I've got to pay off these credit card bills. Or I've got to find love. Mr. Wright is out there somewhere, and I just have to find him. Right? There's, there's this special someone, and until I have romantic love, that's my biggest obstacle, ob- obstacle. That is my biggest issue. Or maybe it's retirement. I'm not quite ready for retirement. Really, are those your biggest issues? Stop and think about it for a moment. Let's imagine all of these things are taken care of. You have the love of your life. Retirement is secure. Your house is paid off. Not to be macabre, but guess what? you're still going to die. Is there a bigger problem than the money you need to pay and your security? Well, I think death seems like one of those problems, right? And and maybe you acknowledge death. You go, look, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die, but I want to leave a legacy behind. So I'm going to do something that matters for generations to come. How many of you know your great-great-grandfather's name? Your great-great-great-great-grandfather's name. How enduring will your legacy be? Oh, but what if I do something really spectacular? Let me grant you something spectacular. Let's say you, you managed to create world peace. Do You think that's an option open to you? Let's imagine you do. All the nations of this world stop fighting. It's never going to be an issue anymore. Everybody lays down goods, guns. Would you say you've done something good? Yeah, probably right. But they're all going to die. And their children are going to die. And their children's children are going to die. And their children's children's children are going to die. Not just that, but collectively as a human race, I mean, even if we, we fed and clothed every human being on the planet and everyone felt secure and we were all holding hands like in a Coke commercial and sharing the love, even if that were to happen, do you know that every single worldview that exists, every religious view, every non-religious or irreligious view holds that not only will human, humanity be done and terminated, but the world itself will disappear and even the cosmos will cease to exist how's your legacy looking now? If you think that, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, at least I can create a legacy that lasts for a little while. Let me ask you this. If you could write the perfect novel right now, I mean, it is, it is the perfect novel. People read it and they laugh and they cry and they say, it changed my life. If you could create that novel right now, but no one would read it and you would even forget it, would it really matter? If you could create a a portrait, a work of art that everyone said was the greatest in the world, but not one person would remember, it would blow away with the wind and be gone, would it really matter? I think what you're starting to see is what most existentialists start to realize after a while is things look pretty bleak when you actually stop to look, but most people never stop to look. This is why the depiction of a lot of philosophers are these mopey people, right? they they just like... if you start to look seriously at how dark things are and how much baggage we have as human beings, it looks pretty ugly pretty quickly. The famous uh, existentialist philosopher, the agnostic Jean-Paul Sartre said this, whether I live for a day or a thousand years makes no difference once I've lost eternity. If I live one day, if I can live for a thousand years, what does it matter once eternity is gone? And most people realize this. If I do not have an eternal existence, then it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how long I live. It doesn't matter how many differences I think I'm making. It just doesn't matter. There's no meaning. There is no purpose. I die. We die. The planet dies. The cosmos dies. And what's the point? Well, wow. Yeah, this is a really encouraging Christmas sermon. Feels pretty good, doesn't it? It is, as uh, Solomon said, it is the grasping of oil. Can you hold it? It's a chasing after the wind. Meaningless, meaningless, or vapor, utterly meaningless. What is the point? This existential despair, this great burden, this great darkness is the project of every world religion. Did you know that? It's why religions exist, to contend with this idea, to, to deal with the, the triple issues. Sin, I'm doing something wrong, my life does not feel right, good and evil exist, what do I do with that? My own baggage, that sin issue, what do I do with that? Meaning, what is the purpose of all of this in death? What what does it matter if it's all going to end in death? And so all the religions of the world try to grapple with this issue. In religious terms, we call this soteriology. It means the logic of salvation. What am I being saved from? What am I being saved by? And what what am I being saved to? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I've got a big problem. What am I being saved from? What is the big problem? What is the means by which I'm going to be saved? How could I possibly be be saved? And what am I being saved to? What is the final condition or outcome when I am saved? This is the project of religious ideas. For most world religions, the answer to those questions are quite dismal. Uh, for those of you who don't know, world religions and comparative religions was one of my undergraduate degree programs. I love the study of other world religions and figuring out what they believe. It encourages me and bolsters my faith in what I believe. But I will say this to you. I've, I've seen the best answers from the other faith systems. They do not escape the triple threat, the sin issue, the death issue, and the meaning issue. So how do they answer the question? Well, you're being saved from obscurity, or you're being saved from a lesser reincarnation, or you're being saved from the cycle of rebirth, or you're being saved from starvation, or you're being saved from pestilence, or you're, you're being saved from existence and continued existence. This salvation runs into the same issues that I just mentioned before. Meaning, sin, and death are not really taken care of. What's the point? If you have an inland cycle of pain or a permanent death, what is the point? How great is this Darkness. Now, most people in our culture, I said, don't deal with this issue, do they? In fact, you don't have to bring up Jesus if you want to turn off people. All you have to do is ask them what the meaning of life is, and you'll find very quickly how, how amazing it is that people can run and hide from a topic. What's the meaning of life? What is the purpose of it all? Why are we here? Why anything? Many people in our culture will say, well, when it comes to these religious answers, I mean, there are so many different religions out there. How could any one of them possibly be true? which is a really foolish statement. Let me show you why. There are so many liquids out there. How could any of them possibly not be poison? Is that reasonable? Is that rational? That's the, same, that's the same logic that is being employed there. There are in fact many variations on religions, but there's actually really only a handful of religious views, did you know that? We can boil them down to four. There are four basic conditions. One of these four things has to be true. Two of them cannot be true. Only one of these things can be true, but one of them must be true. Let's look at them very quickly. Option number one, there are no gods. There's nothing higher than the human condition. We are all the byproduct of matter and motion, a cosmic accident. We end in death, and there's no more. About 12% of the world's population falls into this category. And it's the fastest rising religious view, as other religions are being bailed bailed on in mass succession. There's the word. I knew it was there somewhere. That's what happens when you have this much coffee in the morning. It just <laughs> the brain goes faster than the mouth can. All right. Um, the second view is that there are many distinct spirits or gods. We call this animism or polytheism, the idea of many gods. About fifteen to twenty percent of the world's population believes in this. It depends on where you calculate. The Hindus, Hindus can fall into one of two categories here, but the, again, these are mutually exclusive categories. Number three. There is only one thing, lowercase t, there's only one thing. It's an impersonal oneness that could be called God, lowercase g. When I say impersonal, I mean it doesn't have a personality. It's like the Star Wars force. It's, this is, you know, Buddhist and uh, some Hindu um, pr- uh, ideas or religions actually adhere to this. The idea that there is only one thing, taken as a whole, the whole collective, we could call God, lowercase g, but that's all there is. And it's in the cycle. It's birth and rebirth and rebirth and rebirth. 10 to uh, 20% of the world's population actually believes in this. Then there's the last category. It should sound familiar to you. It's the belief that there is one personal and eminently great God. That's called monotheism. That's us. All right? Um, I hope that you've seen, as we did the apologetic series a few months ago, that there are amazing, adequate reasons to believe and monotheism that there's good reasoning to believe that this is true and that might seem like good news to believe that there is one God but it's not good news yet that's not good news why not well if there are many gods you've got options right if there are lots of gods let's say you don't like the God that you're following now you could just go to heck with that God I'm switching teams and you go over to another deity and you begin to ascribe to that other deity But if there is only one God, then that God is the only game in town. And here's what that means for you and I. We can't ignore him. We can't reject him without harming ourselves. We have to have a relationship with God. If if somebody says there is no God, they still have to have that relationship with God. They're just rejecting him. If somebody doesn't believe in God, they still have a relationship with God, whether they want to or not. It's a lack of belief. If somebody wants to follow God, but they're failing miserably, they still have a relationship with God. Here's what we know. If that God exists, death is not the biggest problem, because all the monotheistic traditions hold that death is not the end, which means you've got a bigger problem, and it's that relationship with that God. Listen to how Jesus describes this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Your biggest problem is not death, it's what comes next. So what is our biggest problem? What is our biggest issue? G.K. Chesterton answers this. G.K. Chesterton, the brilliant theologian of this past century, uh, a newspaper said, write in, give us an editorial, tell us what is the biggest problem in the world. And G.K. Chesterton responded as follows, dear sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I think Chesterton had it right. When we stop and we look, and the great darkness does start to close in, and we think, what is my condition? We look at the baggage we've got. It gets a little overwhelming. This burden is too much. Let's take our moving illustration. It's not just double the biggest move you have ever done. Let's increase the nature of that move from a few boxes in a few hours to a small mountain of boxes, grand pianos, multiple fold-out couches. I hate those things. Oh, man, they're the worst to move. And heavy antique furniture. Now you call your friends. Who will come and help me? And you see that as the move increases to a multi-day move, that maybe your volunteers are getting less. But it's worse than that. Let's imagine that we continually add to this pile, and it gets bigger and bigger and requires more and more days. You recognize that there would be a fall-off, right? Like your friends would start to diminish And that you would come to a point where you had so much to move that no one would show up to help. Isn't that true? But let's make it worse. Let's imagine that not only do you have a move on this day that has to be done and it's going to take 150 years, longer than you can live, but they have the same move to do on their end of things, every one of them. Who's going to turn out to help you? Who shows up for you? None of us could help each other. None of us would even be capable of helping each other. Let's make it worse. Let's imagine you're paralyzed, and so are they. Do you see the burden? Do you feel how great it is? Can you save yourself from death? Can you grant yourself eternal life? Can you give yourself meaning by just deciding you're going to ascribe meaning to yourself? No. How great is the darkness? Who owes you enough that they could come help? Who is it that has enough pizza to cause you to show, or to, to show up? It's, it, none of us. None of us could barter for that. The burden is too much. Sin, death, meaninglessness. There's no way to overwhelm it. There's no way to overcome it. And the story of the world's religions is it is too much. It is too big. You will never be good enough. So how can a monotheist make it right? We've got a God, right? That's good news. No, it's not. Because God said, you want to see my standard? My standard is perfection. How many sins does it take to get a person to hell? Oh, that's not good news. Anybody fall into that category? No? Some of you, some of you are like, no, I'm not raising my hand. Yes, you do. Liars. None of us has attained perfection. And the story of the scriptures is you must have attained perfection. And so some of us might think, well, yeah, I mean, but look in the Old Testament, they sacrificed for favor, right? Can't I give something to God that will accommodate him, that will make him forget what I have done, that will make him forget my sin? And the answer to that is no. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, four we're told the blood of bulls and rams has never compensated for sin. You cannot offer God enough. What can you give God that he doesn't already own? This is all his. And you might think, as we said weeks ago, I can give myself, but that is a lame offering. How good are you? You're bringing in something that's already tainted, something that is not worthy of him, and you're going, what about this? Is this good enough? Unless he does something to this, this is not a worthy sacrifice. What about atonement? Couldn't an animal take my sins? No. No. What about a person? Isn't there someone who loves me enough that a person could step in and take my sins? Yeah. Do you know any perfect people? Let me follow that up with another question. Do you know any perfect people who would be willing to take an eternity of hell on your behalf? Let's follow it up with another question. Even if you knew one person who would have taken an eternity of hell on your behalf, what about everyone else? It's pretty bleak, it's pretty dark pretty accurate. When you see how dark it is, you can see what a great light we have in front of us. Humanity is hopeless. We are hopeless. You are hopeless. I am hopeless. We cannot fix this on our own. I am told that there is a town on the Atlantic coast that has an annual event, and it sounds amazing. I certainly want the t-shirt from having done it. It's a jump the Atlantic contest. And so here's what they do. They have like a, a festival celebration, I guess, and they get everybody out there, and then you, you sign up to jump the Atlantic. And so you take your run when it's your turn, and you jump, and nobody makes it, right? But the idea is how far can I make it, right? And so it, it's this kind of this comical thing that this town just does, but it forms a great illustration for our experience here. We're coming before God, and we're going, what, could it, what would it take for me to please you? And I want you to see something here. The world's greatest long jumper and the hobbled old granny are not that different. What, what did he make it like 20 feet further than her? 15 feet? How much further did he make it into the Atlantic? Is it that profound a difference? This is our condition. The most holy person you have ever met. The most most sacred, wonderful, holy person you have ever met, so long as they're a person, is still just a few feet further than you in the water. They have not jumped the Atlantic. The most wicked sinner you have ever encountered, the most worthless human being that you would ascribe as the dregs of society that you would commit to hell if given the opportunity, that person's only a few feet behind you. Do you realize what our condition is? Look at how in the Old Testament people talk to God They came to him and they said, have mercy on me, have pity on me, over and over again. God, you've got to compensate for the difference. God, you've got to make this up. Lord, will you do something? Lord, we're counting on you to do something. That's a righteous attitude. The God of this universe did not remain silent in the face of those cries. Let's talk about the mysterious promise. Do you see how bleak it is? Do you see how dark it is? Do you see that in yourself? Yeah? Yeah? Have you ever asked yourself why we open presents or wrap presents? Why wrap presents? If you've had to wrap a lot of presents, you probably asked this question, right? Like, why are we doing this? We do this every year. We just cover them up in paper, and, and, and we put them out there so that people can see them and guess at them. Why do that? There's something within us as human beings that loves a mystery. We love something that is seen but is unseen. It's almost there. I'm kind of wrapping my mind around it. I'm getting close to it. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says this It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. The Lord has hidden things uh, in, in modern terms, Easter eggs, right? There are things hidden and, and they're there to be found, and God has placed them there. Uh, proverbs 25 verse 2 the follow-up passages but the glory of kings to search out a matter god hides them but those of a royal lineage they seek them out they discover them from the very beginning god has been hiding things in plain sight things that should be known and understood things that could be revealed you remember the fall Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, human beings have sinned, and God turns to human beings, and he begins leveling curses, not at human beings, not like cursing like we would, but like as in, you know, hopefully not like we would. I'm not saying that you all curse on a regular basis. He begins turning to humans, and he says, you know, here's what's going to be happening with you now, and here's what life is going to be like for you right now. And then he turns to the serpent. It's not just a snake. We're talking about the devil, the adversary. And he says to this entity, he says, I will put enmity, that is open hostility, between your offspring, those who are of you, and between the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman. It's a singular, the seed of woman. And then look at this, he shall fatally bruise your head. We went to very singular there. He, the seed, the one. There will come a time where one entity, will take a stand against the serpent. They will take the, and by the way, the serpent was significant of sin. And the description is here that he will crush your head though you bruise his foot. Sin will be dealt with ultimately, completely. Right at the outset, as soon as man sins, God turns around and says, let me tell you what's going to happen later on. One will show up and sin will be destroyed. But nobody understood what was going on there. The Jews read that for centuries and did not understand. We're told later on that God spoke to this man Abraham, and He led him around the the world in the Middle East, and He said, "Follow me, trust me. Follow me, trust me. Where are we going, God? I'll tell you when you get there." And He takes this guy all around, and He comes to a point in this man's life in Genesis chapter eighteen, verse twenty-two, where He looks at him and says, "And in your seed, from your descendants, which Abraham had none of, from your descendants, all the nations of earth shall be blessed." for you have obeyed my voice. That's a promise. Every nation of earth will be blessed through your seed, through one that comes from your line. Have you ever tracked a package? Have you ever been so excited about a package that you, like, watched it? I love those, that option. I did this when I had a banjo ordered. I was watching it, like, travel around the U.S., like, getting to me. So excited about it. God kind of does this through the scriptures. So we get this initial promise, the serpent's head will be crushed, and then we're told, Abraham's told, all nations will be blessed through you. Something's going to happen in your lineage. And then we see that the, the promise transitions to Isaac in Genesis 22, verse 5. And then it transitions to Jacob, who was not a first son. This is not a normal promise. It's not just descending through the optimal lineage, the eldest son. Then we're told about Judah in Genesis 49. From the tribe of Judah, the one will emerge, the seed will come up. The scepter will not depart from between his feet. He will have a kingdom that lasts forever. Have you ever known someone who had a kingdom who lasts forever? Do you see it anywhere else in Israel's history? And yet we're told now that not only is it a seed, but this seed is royal. This seed is going to be a king. David is told in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11 through 16, this offspring that will come from you, David, will build a house for me. And it's going to be an eternal household. He will have a kingdom that will last forever. His throne will endure before me forever. And the Jews said, we've got to name this guy. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. This guy, this person is going to show up in space-time history, and everything is going to be different. And so the Jews began to anticipate God will do something. But what's this guy like? Who is he? Where will we find him? The prophets are the wrapping on the gift. They give an indication of what's there. They start telling you what's there. Were any of you alive in the late 90s to watch movies? A couple of you? Something happened in the mid to late 90s that really revolutionized movie production. There were a series of movies that came out, things like The Usual Suspects or The Sixth Sense or The Matrix. And in these movies, what they did was they took a major plot point, like a huge plot point, and they hit it in plain sight. And you're watching the movie, and you're going through it, and you're, you see that it's there. There's something there. But suddenly something clicks, and you look back, and you go, that's what that was all about. And, and it's like, you, could, in hindsight, it all makes sense. And You're like, how did I not see it? It was right there the whole time. And this is what the prophets do. So let's think about what the prophets have said. In Micah chapter 5, we're told That Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, this little rickety nothing village out in the middle of nowhere. But we're told this, though he's born in Bethlehem, he exists before his birth or outside of his birth or possibly apart from time. Do you know anybody like that? Did you exist before your birth or outside of your birth? Me either. We were told that the appearance would be signaled by a bright star in Numbers chapter 24. We're told that Messiah would be miraculously born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. We're told that Messiah would perform miracles in Psalm 107 and Isaiah 35. We're told that he would teach in parables in Psalm 78. We're told that one day he would rule over everything, Isaiah 45 and Psalm 22. We're told that Messiah would present himself to Jerusalem as an anointed king in Zechariah 9. We're told that he would present himself to a rejoicing Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, but not just a donkey, the foal of a donkey. We're told that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We're told that the money would be thrown on the floor of the temple and eventually go to the potter. All of that in Zechariah chapter 11, hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. Israel would reject him according to Isaiah chapter 8. He would be crucified according to Psalm 22. Gall and wine would be offered to him according to Psalm 69. He would be pierced with a spear in Zechariah 12. He would be betrayed by a friend in Psalm 41. And then there's this other character. So they, get, they got this concept of Messiah, and he's got all these weird features that they're looking for. But then there's this other guy that they talk, talked about, Isaiah 53. They called him the suffering servant. And here's who the suffering servant is. He's a person who would come to save mankind, everyone. We're told that he would suffer greatly. We're told that he would be rejected by many, including his friends. We're told that he would become man's sin offering, that he would be the Passover lamb, that he would go on trial and refuse to defend himself. We're told that he would die with thieves and be buried in a rich man's grave. And the Jews said, I don't know who that is, but it sounds like he's got a rough go of things. And all the while, they heard these stories. And God was hiding in plain sight what he was going to do. And anticipation began to build. Do you remember the Samaritan woman at the well? She's she's not a good person. She's she's a wicked person. She's got all sorts of baggage. She knows how great the darkness is. She knows what she's got to move. And as she's speaking to Jesus, she says, I know Messiah will come. And when he shows up, he's going to explain everything to us. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. She had anticipation. I don't know how God's going to fix this but I know he's going to fix it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, 10-12, Peter says, as to this salvation, these are things the prophets longed to look into. Do you realize that when these prophets wrote down their prophecy, they had no idea what they were talking about? God said, write this down, and they're like, that's weird. <laughs> right? And And so... They, they're looking at it and they're wanting to know how it works out too. And when they write something about Messiah, I can imagine Isaiah going, okay, God, but like when's this going to happen and how's this going to happen? And we're told that they desired it. But we're told this in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Spirit of Christ, who was revealing these things to them, said to them it was for someone who would come later on. It's not for you to know, it's for those who would come later. Us. We're told at the end of that passage that these are things even angels long to look upon. In other words, it was not just hidden from the prophets who were delivering these particular Easter eggs. It was hidden from the angelic powers and the principalities of the the world. They did not know what would happen. And so when you see Jesus born and, and the angels appear to the shepherds and they are flipping out and glorifying God, that was not a show. That was not a performance they had to put on. They had been waiting too, and when it was revealed, they rejoiced. God shows up. The unthinkable happens in space-time history. How can man be delivered? Every other religion is going, here are the hoops you have to jump through, and then maybe you'll be considered. And if you can get to God, and the story is you can't get to God but our story's different. God looks at our circumstance, and he didn't just go, sorry about your luck, you'll never be good enough. God showed up. If you've ever read the scriptures, and you come to the second chapter of Acts, and you see Peter preaching, and his sermon is interrupted in the middle, as people go, what must we do to be saved? This is after Christ died and was resurrected. What must we do to be saved? realize that for those who are the 90s movies fan, this is the moment where they're like, Kaiser Soze has been sitting at the table the whole time. The, main, the protagonist is a ghost, you know, or, or the Matrix. Now I know what the Matrix is. You're, you're not even alive as a human being in the world you think you are. And by the way, if I ruin three movies for you, <laughs> you've had 20 years, come on. <laughs> they see what is happening clearly. And think about this. Think of how they've been inundated with these ideas for the whole of their lives, and the lights come on, and suddenly they look back in hindsight, and they'll go, this is what God was up to. This is what the Lord was doing. The offspring of Eve that crushes the head of the serpent. The promised blessing to the nations through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Judah, through David, the Messiah, the suffering servant. This is all a reference to the same person. And more than that, from the predictions of the prophets, the inexplicable stories and rituals of the people of Israel, the sacrifice of Isaac, think about that. Like, how inexplicable that story must have been to the Israelite people until you view it through the lenses of the person of Christ. The Passover lamb, the sin offering on the Day of Atonement, sacrifice in general, why are we doing this? It all would come to bear, and in a moment people would go, that's what it is about. God has been speaking this truth to them throughout the whole of scriptures think about the word in the book of Isaiah chapter 43 we get a literal description of this but God over and over again has been talking to people and he said I'm going to save you I will save you depend on me your salvation is through me wait on me I will be your savior I'm going to save you do you, do you see this in the Old Testament Do you understand that this is the message? And people thought, well, yeah, I mean, from the local kings, from the local princes, but nobody thought from my baggage, from my greater darkness. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord, your creator, says, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 11, I, only I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. Verse 25, I, only I, am he who wipes away your transgression for my own sake or to redeem you to myself, and I will not remember your sins. Who will save us? God hid it in plain sight. He told us. But what kind of God would condescend? I mean, like, what kind of God shows up to help me? Who shows up to help you with the move? That's not the role of gods. Gods are meant to be served by men, right? And Jesus enters time-space history and says, the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve. And he washes feet. Philippians chapter 2, 5-11. through 11. Jesus... Who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our God comes to us. He did not set an impossible task and then just leave us to drown. Our God set an impossible task and then he carried us. Isaiah 9, a child is born, a son is given. Have you ever thought about those words? They're not by accident. A child is born. That happens all the time. That second phrase changes it. Not only is a child born, but a son is given. God gave us his son in the same person. And look at the rest of this text. For the government will rest on his shoulders. He has changed every nation and every people group. I was just discussing this with somebody earlier. You know humility changed? Based on who Jesus was, the term humble was never a positive term until Jesus showed up on the scene. It was always a negative. So you might be humiliated, that's something that somebody did to you, but you never sought that. When Jesus showed up on the scene, the whole world flipped on its head and people went, humility is good. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Listen to this, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. How can a man be called Mighty God? How can a man be called Eternal Father? He's more than a man. He's God. He's Emmanuel, which means God with us. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Listen to this phrase The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Who will go save us? He will. Can a way be made? Can someone help you jump the Atlantic? Can somebody move the impossible baggage for you? And let's be honest about the baggage. It is impossible. We're not just talking about boxes and, uh, and grand pianos. We're talking about carcasses of blue whales and battleships, uh, right? And, I mean, it is, it is more than you could possibly do on your own. And the God of this universe shows up while you are paralyzed and he does it for you. And what would they call him? His name, Jesus. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. When it comes to sin and death and meaning, when it comes to our great burden, when it comes to the great darkness, here's the good news. Our God has made a way. Our God is the great light. He has shown up. And that's great news. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we are... uh, at least I am. We are overwhelmed. That you would show up in our lives, that you would come into space-time history, that you would humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross, that torture, for my sake. God, you are amazing. Lord, as we celebrate this time of year and we remember the coming of Messiah, I pray that we would rejoice in those moments in thinking about what has been done for us and how much you love us. Praise you, O oh God. It's In your name we pray. Amen.